Peter Berger and Thomas Luckman in their book, Social Construction of Reality, says this, race as we know it is a myth. Race is a social construct. A social construction or a social construct is any phenomenon invented or constructed by participants in a culture or society existing because people agree to behave as if it exists or follow certain conventional rules. One example of a social construct is social status. Uh, Part of the reason why when we talk about race there's a disconnect is because the reality is there's no such thing called race. I mean, there is, because as we just read, it's been socially constructed, but in every other case. Now, l- let me give you an example of that, okay? Uh, I found this uh, article on the Wall Street Journal. The title is, In South Africa, Chinese is the New Black. Do I have your attention? Yeah, okay. Chinese is the New Black. Check this out. A high court in South Africa ruled on Wednesday that Chinese South Africans will be reclassified as black. A term that includes black Africans, Indians, and others who are subject to discrimination under apartheid. As a result of this ruling, ethnically Chinese citizens will be able to benefit from government affirmative action policies aimed at undoing the effects of apartheid. And keep going. This is not the first time the classification of Chinese in South Africa has changed. In fact, the racial status of Chinese South Africans has often shifted with the nation's political climate and its international relations. Race is a social construct. There's no such thing as black Chinese people. (laughs) You got really dark Asian people like me, but... Anyway, okay, so I keep going. As apartheid became enshrined in law with the ascendancy of the Afrikaner government in the late 1940s, the Chinese were classified as colored, forced to live apart from whites, and were denied educational and business opportunities along with the right to vote. But after South Africa established an economic alliance with Taiwan in the 1970s, Taiwanese immigrants were welcomed as honorary whites. And other Chinese in South Africa began to be treated more like whites. Although they never attained the former honorary white status of Taiwanese, Koreans, or Chinese. I know, Korean people, I know we were honorary whites in South Africa. That's, that's pretty interesting. Okay, anyway. Uh, so, uh, South Africa couldn't and couldn't vote. Chinese South Africans were no longer required to use segregated facilities. And in the 1980s, they were exempted from some of the discriminatory laws that applied to other non-whites. After apartheid ended in the early 1990s, the legal status of Chinese has remained in a gray area, though they've generally been lumped together with whites and denied the post-apartheid benefits available to other non-white groups. For those of you that want a further discussion of this and you're confused because you're sitting there going, I have no idea what you just said. What the heck is race? What is ethnicity? What is culture? All those terms are just confusing and prepared a little paper for you. There's about 50 copies. It's a paper that describes why race is a social construct or a myth. White race, black race, if you will. Okay? I want you to pick it up. I want you to pick it up. Because it'll give you some language to follow along as we dialogue, okay? Now, you guys, I, I sensed this last Sunday. There's so much discomfort in the room, like, with this, you know? And I thought it was just me, but I don't think so. I think all of it, there's just discomfort here. 
in regards to talk about race. And I think part of the reason why we can't get beyond this conversation is because we all feel uncomfortable, right? So I'm going to make you feel a little bit more uncomfortable this morning, okay? Because I'm going to be completely politically, like, incorrect, if that's okay. Okay. I got this blog from a white person in our church sent it to me. It's a blog called Stuff White People Like. <laughs> See, we need to laugh about this. You know what I mean? Like, we need to laugh. Look, the reality is, look, check this out. The reality is we do this. We laugh within our own ethnic, racial, cultural circles about other people. No, did you know that, Michael? We actually do that. Yeah, we do that. You know, it's good Christian folk. We do that. And yet, when it comes to trying to be this radical intimate community of God, it's almost like we're afraid to ask questions, we're afraid to have deep conversations, we're afraid to look stupid ignorant, and we're afraid to actually be, you know, look like a racist or a culturally clueless person. We need to get beyond that if we're going to be a genuine community. We do. I talked about this last Sunday after service with a group of people. I said, why are people so stressed out about wanting to talk about this? Why is there so much tension? And you know what they said? They said, because we don't want to look stupid. And they said, secondly, we don't want to offend well, you know what? We have to give permission to look stupid and to offend. Is that okay? Because if you're sitting there going, don't ever say anything offensive about my culture or my ethnicity, because if you do, if that's your attitude, we can never be an intimate community. We can't. So back to stuff white people like. Okay. There's like 103 things on this list, you know? And white folks in here, again, I know it's a, uh, social construct, but, you know, if you're white, however you define that, okay? Tell me if this is true. So on this list, like 102, is white people like children's games as adults. (laughs) Is that true? Okay. Uh, Number 99, I'm not going to read out. Number 99 was grammar. White people like grammar, okay? Uh, number, uh, Number 97, white people like scarves. Okay. Uh, next one I know is true. White people, 96. White people like New Balance shoes. They do. I know that. I work out at the gym. I know. I'm like every white person, up oh, New Balance, up oh, New Balance, right? Everybody white. Okay. <laughs> Number 95, rugby. Just true, because you don't see a lot of Asians and, you know, black folks. Okay. 94, free health care. White people like free health care. Uh, Number 90, dinner parties. Uh, Number 87, white people like outdoor performance clothes. Okay. What does that mean? Like, you know, active wear. Yeah. What it, yeah. Come on, white people, tell us. What, what, what does this mean? I, I don't know. I have no idea. I don't, like $200, just, you know, like, what is that thing? What is that thing? North Face, yes, North Face, Columbia, you know. Like you wear that just to go out, like not to actually go camping somewhere or something. I don't know. All right. Number 83, white people like bad memories of high school. Uh, Number 82, white people like hating on corporations. Number 80, uh, white people like the idea of soccer, the idea of soccer, okay. Uh, Number 78, white people like multilingual children, okay. Uh, number 77, white people like musical comedy, okay? Uh, number 75, threatening to move to Canada, okay? Uh, number 74, white people like Oscar parties. 
Uh, number 73 is a little serious. Why people like gentrification, okay? Number 67, why people like standing still at concerts. <laughs> and Michael says, and in church too. Okay, uh, okay. Uh, number 64 is recycling, why people like recycling, okay? Number 63, why people like expensive sandwiches, okay? <laughs> now, I know, listen, before I go, I know, I know, I'm glad we can laugh about it, because I don't want some of you sitting there going, be all serious, like, that's not me, that's not me, I don't, we're not, we're not saying this is about everybody, okay? Like, I invite somebody to actually come up here and, and, and give a list of, you know, Things that Korean people like or Asian people like. I would love to see a list like that, okay? Number 62, knowing what's best for poor people. Why people like knowing what's best for poor people. (laughs) Number 61, number 61, why people like bicycles, okay? Have you looked at the city of Chicago and who rides bicycles, okay? Number 60, why people like Toyota Prius, okay? Number 54, kitchen gadgets. Number 53, dogs. Uh, Number 52, Sarah Silverman. That's a very white comedy kind of thing. Uh, Number 51, white people like living by the water. Number 49, white people like vintage. Vintage, okay. Number 48, whole foods and grocery co-ops, okay. Uh, Number 45, I know this to be true too. White people like Asian fusion food. (laughs) You're all about that. Now, you won't go for the real authentic stuff, but the fusion stuff, you know. It's just, okay, uh, public radio number forty-four, and uh, I'll go down this list real quick. Number forty-one, indie music made the list. Why people like indie music? Number forty, app, uh, people like Apple products. That's an Apple as in computer Apple products. Uh, number thirty-eight, Arrested Development. Number thirty-six, Breakfast. Number thirty-six, Breakfast Places. Number thirty-two, why people like vegan or vegetarianism? Which, by the way, makes no sense for some people in our world. They're like. Y'all got, like, plenty of meat and you don't want to eat it? Like, what's, what's that all about? Okay, anyway. Number 31, snowboarding. Number 30, Wrigley Field. Because if you want a multicultural experience, go to Cellular Field. Go see the Sox play. Now, now. Although the Sox are getting their butts whipped this weekend. Okay, number 22, I'm almost done. Number 22, why people like having two last names? <laughs> By the way, at some point, I do want to ask the black folks why you name some of your children the way you do. I'm just curious. I'm just saying. Okay, okay, here we go. Uh, number 20, being an expert in your culture. White people, you like that? Number 19, Traveling. Number 17, why people like hating their parents. I don't know if this is true. Number 14 was uh, why people like having black friends. Is that true? Yeah. Roland, are you like the honorary black friend for like 20 white folks? Are you? Are you? Okay. I could see that. Number 12, uh, why people like nonprofit organizations? Number 11, why people? Asian girls. 
I, I told you I'm going to get politically incorrect. I'm going to, a little commentary, a social commentary on that, please. Why people like Asian, like Asian girls? I will offend. 95% of white males have at one point in their life experienced what's called yellow fever. That's an attraction to someone of the yellow, ra- or, yeah, yellow fever. Look, we all Asians talk about it, so don't, you know, we do. <laughs> Many factors have contributed to this phenomenon, such as guilt from head taxes, internment, internment camps, and dropping the nuclear bomb in the Vietnam War. This exchange works both ways as Asian girls have a tendency to go for white guys. White girls never go for Asian guys. Oh, no. Bruce Lee is the only recorded instance in history. (laughs) Yes. It's true. Asian man, come on, speak up now. I'm not going to pick on you. Hey, where is the love? Asian girls often do this to get back at their strict traditional fathers. There's also the option of dating black guys, but they know deep down that this would give their non-English speaking grandmothers a heart attack. <laughs> Let's just be real here, okay? Now, white men love Asian women so much that they will go to extremes, such as stating that Sandra Oh is sexy. She's Korean. She's my peeps. She's not very attractive. <laughs> Let's just be real. She's a great actress, but she's not very attractive. My wife is beautiful. She is not. <laughs> anyway, white men love Asian women so much that they'll go to extremes or teaching English in Asia or playing in a co-ed volleyball league or attending institutions such as UBC or UCLA. By the way, do you know what UCLA stands for? Somebody? UCLA, do you know what that stands for? Say that one more time. What? Yep. Did you hear that? <laughs> UCLA, the institution stands for United Caucasians Lost Among Asians. Because UCLA is like 50% Asian American, the, the school itself, okay? Anyway. Take, for instance, the fact that Asian women, this is another factor that draws white guys to Asian women, is that white women are jealous of them. Take, for instance, the fact that Asian women, Asian women, uh, well into their, Asian women well into their 30s and 40s retain teen or college girl looks without the help of Botox, yoga, or trendy diet. Asian women also avoid key white women characteristics Such as having a midlife crisis, divorce, and hobbies that don't involve taking care of their children. <laughs> Should white guy or Asian girl marry, they produce hybrids that are aesthetically pleasing. <laughs> Have you seen children of white and Asian people? They're very beautiful. This practice is also a means by which white people can catch up to the Asian people in the population race as most of the hybrids often act white rather than Asian. Do you think we could talk like this in our church? What's that? We just did? 
Um, we don't have a ton of time this morning, and here's what I want to do. Um, I think there's two primary reasons, amongst others, why it's hard, difficult for us to talk about the issue of race, ethnicity, and culture. One is what we just did. I think it's really hard for us to maybe in some ways laugh at ourselves, but also realize that we have stereotypes, we have prejudices, we have attitudes that we wrestle with, and yet we're so afraid to be frank about our ignorance sometimes, to be frank about our biases, that it keeps us from growing, if you will, in the area of community and relationships. Look, I struggle with the same thing. It's not just you. Michael noticed last Sunday, he's like, Pastor, you normally are not nervous when you're up there, but man, you were nervous last Sunday. And he's right. I was extremely nervous last Sunday. And I thought to myself, why do I have to be nervous about talking about this when I've talked about homosexuality? I've talked about sex. I've talked about every controversial topic out there. And yet, when it comes to the topic of race, in me still, there's that thing of, I don't want to offend. What if I say something stupid? What if I say something that's not true? And we just need to be able to give permission in this church and saying, so What? Because how are we going to, and Michael, maybe next week or the week after, we'll talk about this. How are we going to move from pseudo-community, which is, I think, where our church is right now, to chaos, chaos, that's coming to groups with where we're really at before we can move to genuine community? How are we going to move towards that unless we're willing to go, I'm really nervous right now. And by the way, I am again today. I'm really nervous right now because this is an area that I don't feel like I'm an expert in. This is an area where I don't feel like I have. How do I... How can we be a church? We could just be honest and say, yeah, yeah. I wrestle with that too. I think the other reason why we wrestle with this, and as your pastor, I need to do this today. I think the other reason why we wrestle with this is because for many of us, there's a huge disconnect between when we talk about the gospel and racial reconciliation. Let me say that again. There's a huge disconnect when we talk about the gospel and racial reconciliation because here's what I see and here's what I hear and here's what is observed sort of in the conversation dialogue in most churches in America. When we look at racial reconciliation or the fact that different people of culture and ethnicity need to be reconciled, we say things like this. We say, well, yeah, everybody should get along. And everybody should really do their, do their best to be able to build bridges and relationships, so on and so forth. But at the end of the day, the gospel doesn't demand that you be committed to it, does it? The gospel doesn't demand that this become a part of your life as a Christian, does it? I mean, it'd be nice to have different races in heaven and we should do our best to get along here on earth. But hey, it's no threat to the gospel if we're not committed to racial reconciliation, is it? Well, I want to propose to you this morning... For those of you that are coming to our church and have come to our church because you're so enthralled with the gospel of Jesus Christ, I want to tell you this morning that the only way to look at the gospel of Jesus Christ correctly is to look at it holistically. What do I mean? The gospel of Jesus Christ tells us, and we're going to look in the word, that not only is reconciliation about God reconciling us to him, but reconciliation in the gospel also entails different race, culture, and ethnicity being reconciled to each other. Racial reconciliation is not just an add-on to the gospel. Racial reconciliation is not just something nice that good Christians ought to do because after all, you know, we are progressive people living in the city of Chicago. Racial reconciliation is so much the heart of the gospel that if you and I do one of two things. One, we sort of passively avoid it because after all, I don't have any racial dislikes. We're not being a follower of Jesus and fulfilling the gospel mandate. Secondly, 
if we also stop, and we're going we're gonna to talk about this in the upcoming weeks, stop at the point of, I am deeply committed to racial reconciliation personally and relationally so that I am engaging in conversation and building relationships with people. And yet at the same time, we ignore the huge systemic institutional issues of racism that exist in our society. We also fall short. Somehow I need to convince many of you today who sit there going, the gospel of Jesus Christ, I love it. It's beautiful. It's about God reconciling me to God. And that's it. I need to convince you today, not my words, but the Bible says that reconciliation, reconciliation, reconciliation is the gospel. And reconciliation isn't just about us and God, but reconciliation entails reconciliation of people across ethnicity, culture, and race. Are you with me so far? Are you with me so far? Okay. Now, here's the reason why that's the case. We've truncated the gospel, basically. And the reason why I've truncated the gospel to say the gospel of Jesus Christ about me and God and Him reconciling me to Him is because we don't realize that the gospel has both individual, corporate, and cosmic dimensions. The gospel of Jesus Christ comes addressing something that's found throughout the book of Genesis that we completely miss. And that is when sin enters the world, you guys, not, it didn't just affect our relationship with God, the individual component. When sin enters the world, it mars and breaks off every relationship. Our relationship with God, our relationship with each other, and our relationship with the created order. When sin comes into the world and invades the human experience, it breaks and corrupts and perverts every relationship. Our relationship with God, our relationship with each other, and relationship with the world. And what is God out to do? The gospel. And the gospel that God sets it out to do isn't just to reconcile us to God, but the gospel that tells us what God is out to do is to reconcile us to each other as well as the created order. It's a holistic, cosmic, corporate, and individual dimension of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, I was going to do this long thing. It's kind of, kind of dating you guys back from Genesis all the way to Revelation. And here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to just jump in right now and see how far we can go. And hopefully I can get to that end part because it's the most important part where I want to show you that there's one work of reconciliation, one work of reconciliation that is both an individual, corporate, and cosmic dimension. But open your Bibles with me. I, is, it, is, it, is it there? Okay. One work of reconciliation. Open your Bibles with me to Genesis 12. Today's going to be a little bit different from what you're normally accustomed to, and that is this. I'm going to do a really quick brief survey or sketch of the biblical storyline, okay? And what we're going to do in the upcoming weeks is to kind of hammer away at this in various parts. For those of you that are going, well, are you going to cover all three aspects today? Now, I'm not going to cover all three aspects today. I'm just going to give us a biblical foundation and anchor, show you that from Genesis to Revelation, there's one work of reconciliation, us and God, us and each other, and us in the created order. God begins this work of reconciliation, okay? And the way that God begins this reconciliation work of every facet of creation, and he calls one man, and through this one man, one nation. Genesis 12, verse 1. Listen to what it says. The Lord said to Abraham, leave your country, your people, and go to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all the peoples on earth will be blessed through you. From this point on in biblical revelation, this is very important. From this point on, God essentially begins his reclamation, restoration project of everything that's fallen because of sin. 
And the way he goes about doing this is he calls a man, Abraham, and through Abraham he calls a nation of Israel. Now check this out. What was the mission of the nation of Israel? Which is filled throughout the Old Testament. The nation of Israel, their mission was simple. He was a mission. God said, you have been chosen by me. You have received the law. And here's what I want you to do with that. I want you to spread the goodness and the grace of God to the other nations. And here's what I want you to do. I want you to show to the other nations what an integrated, healed, restored humanity looks like on earth. I want you to show the nations of the earth what happens when I ultimately come and restore every facet of creation. Your relationship with me, your relationship with each other, and your relationship with the created order. I want you to be an embodiment on earth of the life of God on earth. Okay? I want you to behave and act in your social practices in such a way that the other nations will be able to look at that and go, so that's what God's going to do when he finally comes and restores this whole thing? That was their mission. That was their mission. Quick quiz. Did they do good or bad? Not so good, did they? What happens? Here's the mistake that Israel made, and, and, and I'm going I, I, to get a little... Uh, maybe a little... Uh, okay, I'll just get there, and then you guys will decide for yourself. Here's what nation the nation of Israel did. Nation of Israel takes the privileges that she enjoys of being called by God, chosen by God, and she keeps them for herself. And here's what Israel thinks. God has chosen us, and since God has chosen us, we're better than the other nations. And instead of spreading the grace and goodness of God, we are going to despise them. We are going to demonize them. Israel makes the mistake. Oh boy, I got to be very careful. I'll right here. Israel makes the mistake of identifying their election with their ethnicity. Israel makes the mistake of identifying election with their ethnicity, which inevitably results in racism, ethnocentrism, and superiority complex. The reason why I say I need to try to care for waters is because. Just say it this way. Whenever a nation or group of people thinks that they are favored or chosen by God because of their race, their nationality, their country of origin, it will inevitably result in racism, ethnocentrism. White Christians in this country perpetuated racism based on this logic. God has chosen our race. Millions of Native Americans were slaughtered based on this faulty logic. God chose us. Millions of Jews were wiped out because the Nazis believed in a tragic form of this logic. Are you tracking with me? Whenever a nation or a group of people comes to believe God chose us, God chose us, God favors us, God blesses us, not because of anything that he does, but because of our nation, our nationality, our race, or country of origin, the inevitable result is one of, I'm better than you, I'm superior than you, racism, ethnocentrism, superiority complex. Our country is treading on tenuous ground. Whenever a country or a nation says that God has chosen us and blessed us because, and you fill in the blank, the result is one of racism, ethnocentrism, nationalism. 
Look at biblical history. Who was Abraham? Do you know who Abraham was? Abraham was a pagan living in a city called Ur, worshiping the sun god called Sin, when God comes calling him. God never blesses you, chooses you, elects you because of your race, ethnicity, or anything else about you. God chooses, blesses, favors you based on what? His grace and grace and grace. This is so dangerous today. This is why when non-Christians say religion has done more harm than good, you got to say, it's true. Don't deny it. Say, it's true. Why? Because when a nation or group of people thinks God favors us, God blesses us because of our race, our nationality, our ethnic origin, the inevitable result is racism, ethnocentrism, terrorism. This problem has been around for thousands of years. It's not a modern invention. It's not a modern invention. Do you know what will heal this? Do you know what will heal? The gospel of Jesus Christ. The gospel of Jesus Christ will heal this. Because is it possible? Let me just ask you a question. Is it possible for a Christian to truly embrace the gospel of Jesus Christ deep in their hearts and souls and still be a racist? Church? Yes or no? Is it possible for somebody to truly embrace this thing right here? This thing, the cross, symbolic of Jesus Christ dying for his enemies, bleeding for his enemies, forgiving and loving those who are persecuting him and saying, I am dying for you. Is it possible for somebody to truly embrace the central essence, the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ and be a racist, be a nationalist, be, an ethno, be ethnocentric? Is it possible to have a superiority complex when the gospel come and melts your heart? Is it possible? See, people haven't thought about it this way, but have you thought about it this way? Racism and ethnocentrism is nothing but another form of works righteousness. Ethnocentrism and racism is another form of works righteousness. In other words, things that we do to try and prove ourselves before God and to prove ourselves before other people. Racism and ethnocentrism is in the same category, if you will, in terms of its effect, as stuff that we use to say we prop ourselves up to cover our nakedness, success, money, beauty, intellect, you name it. I could tell you why some Koreans, people that I represent, are racist. It's because of insecurity. And for the Koreans out there going, what are you talking about? We're not racist. Please. Racism and ethnocentrism is nothing but another form of works righteousness, things that we use to prop ourselves up so that we say my ethnicity, my race, and because of who I am, I am superior than you. Why do you do that? Well, the gospel of Jesus Christ comes along and heals that and says, guess what? You are more wicked and more sinful than you dare believe. But in Christ, you are more accepted and more loved. Because of my race? No! Because of my color? No! Because of my country of origin? No! Because of Christ. Because of Christ. Because of Christ. The gospel... Do you know what the irony is? Irony? Do you know what the irony is? I was going to say, you know what's ironic? You know what the irony is? The irony is we live in a country that's founded on Christian principle and Christianity, and yet it's the country that perpetuated racism because people didn't understand the gospel. We live in a country where racism has done more harm than, more harm than we could ever imagine, not because people were Christian, but because people weren't Christian enough.
It is impossible for a Christian to embrace the central message of the gospel and ever think that you are better, ever think that you are superior, ever think that you have more merit than somebody else. Incompatible with the gospel of Jesus Christ. So you know I hammer away at this every Sunday. Do you know why? Because it is the, the solution to everything. For those of us that can't get beyond a racist, a prejudice, some latent, some blatant, the reason why we can't get over the, 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 the generations of attitudes and thoughts and beliefs that we were instilled in by our parents and by grandparents, the reason why we are still affected by that, can't get beyond that, I'm telling you right now, whether you know it consciously or not, is because deep down inside, the gospel of Jesus Christ has not melted your heart. Because if it does, it will change the way you look at everybody. So Israel, instead of regarding her mission as light to the nations, agents of God's redeeming work in the world, they despise other nations. And you know what's crazy? Israel began to think that God felt the same way. Israel actually began to think, you know what? We hate them. God hates them too. We despise them. God despises them too. And by the way, it's still around today. Here's how it sounds in the modern version. Us versus them mentality. Here's how it sounds today. When you think that God has chosen you and you despise other nations, you think God does the same, you say things like, if you are not an enemy of our, fill in the blank, then you, or if you're not a friend of our, fill in the blank, then you are an enemy of, fill in the blank. Do you know what happens when a nation begins to think, God chose us, God, we are favored of God because of, you know what they say? People start talking about the axis of evil. Where is that in the Bible? Somebody please show me. Where is that in the Bible? Where is it in the Bible that God says, I despise those nations, I hate those nations, but I love you because of your ethnicity, because of your race. Somebody please show me in the Bible where it says that. The arrogance and pride and the audacity to say, God loves us, God chooses us, whether it be individuals or people, and despises other nations, could only come when you have no idea what the gospel of Jesus Christ says. That you have done nothing, absolutely nothing to deserve God's grace. Nothing. He simply, out of his grace and mercy, chose you. The most perfect illustration of this is Jonah. Remember Jonah? You know, we read Jonah as one man disobeying God, right? And goes on this spiritual wandering thing, you know, and God chases him because he doesn't want to go to Nineveh. Yeah, Jonah doesn't want to go to Nineveh because he says, God, if I go and preach to those people, those nasty pagans, you actually might be compassionate. God forbid. You actually might forgive them. God forbid. You actually might be loving towards them. Oh, no. And so, therefore, I am not going to go. And what happens? God does come. God does forgive. God does heal through his preaching. You know why this story is important? Because you and I go, man, Jonah, that Jonah. But you know what the real story, I think, in Jonah is? I give Jonah a little bit of credit because do you know who he was called to go to? Jonah is called to go to Nineveh. And here's who lived in Nineveh. The Ninevites were the very people that threw Jewish babies while they were alive up against cement walls, crushing their skulls and sacrificing them to their gods. The people in Nineveh were the people that raped their sisters and raped their mothers. The people in Nineveh were the people that oppressed and marginalized Jonah's people. 
So give Jonah a little bit of credit when God comes along and says to Jonah, Jonah, you know those people that did that to your people? I want you to go to them. You know what this is equivalent to? Some of you guys might not be uh, aware. In the early 1900s, the Japanese occupied Korea for about 20-some years. And they tried to wipe out their culture. They instituted emperor worship. Thousands of Christians were killed. Forced them to learn Japanese in schools. Koreans. The 20-some years of hostility still lingers today. I remember growing up. This is so funny. I remember growing up. And my grandparents and my uncles and aunts, you know, there was this like, we never buy Japanese product. Never. I'm like, why? They're better than ours, you know? Why? <laughs> they make better cars. Well, maybe not anymore. Props to my people, Koreans. <laughs> Hyundai's are great cars. Very cheap, very affordable. Great, great protection plan, like 150,000 miles, 10 years. <laughs> But I remember saying, I remember saying, and I never forget you guys, I remember a conversation I had with my grandmother, my grandmother who lived through this. She almost couldn't speak. She almost couldn't speak, recounting this story of what it meant for her and her people to be oppressed and marginalized and almost have their culture wiped out. Do you know what Jonah's story is like? Jonah's story is equivalent to a Korean person being called by God to go to Japan and preach the gospel of Jesus Christ so that the Japanese who did that could repent of their sins and experience God's grace. I could tell you I would balk. I would hesitate. I would say, let me think about that now. I would say, I'm going to get on a boat and go the other way for a little bit. Can I get a little more serious? This means that for uh, some of you African-American folks in our church, it is meant that there are African-American folks in our church who started the church with me, are in the trenches every week, week in and week out. And I just need to say this. For some of you guys that have no idea how hard it is for black folks to be in our church, I just want you to know right now, it's very, very hard. Because see, for the majority of us, it's kind of like, I go to church, I do my thing. But for a lot of black folks, them being here is a call of Jonah on their lives to be reconcilers to a group of people who marginalize and oppress their ancestral families. Does that ever cross your mind? Does it ever cross your mind? When you sit in church and when you interact outside, does it ever cross your mind that for the black folks in our church, African Americans, let me talk specifically about them, who have been here for generations and under slavery, do you realize how hard it is for white fo- uh, black folks to be here and worshiping and trying to do community with white folks? Do you know what would mean a ton to them? Do you know, I know their pastors are different. Do you know what would mean a lot to them? It's just having some white folks in our church just acknowledge that and saying, I'm sorry that it's hard. Just acknowledge it and saying, I know. It's hard, you guys. It's really hard. And let me just be frank. For those of us Asian Americans, you know, and and Caucasians who make up a lot of this congregation, the reality is we're the dominant majority. We never have to think twice, you know. 
You got a guy with slanted eyes that goes out there, looks just like you preaching, and there's a level of comfort. Like, yeah, I can dig this. But for a lot of folks in our church, this is hard. But they're here because they're following the call of God. And let me just say this, you guys. Do you know why? Do you, do you know why? I, I, and I'm not just going to stop it, you know. And I'm glad some of you guys clapped. And it was interesting that the person that started clapping is a white gentleman who I am friends with in the church and I know his heart. Look, the reason why this is because how will the world know? How will an unbelieving city of Chicago know that the gospel is real? How will they know? How will they know that this gospel has the ability to transform lives? How will they know that someone who's been transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ actually now has the ability to forgive somebody when it doesn't make any sense to forgive? How will they know that the gospel of Jesus Christ can come and say, I can give you the ability to love somebody that you have the hardest time loving because they have oppressed and marginalized your people? How will they know unless they are courageous reconcilers who can step up and say, I will respond to the call of Jonah. How will they know? How will the world know? How will the world know? So to that, I want to get to, because I just want to skip right there. I want to get to that. Turn your Bibles to Ephesians. I want to, I want to end with this. I want to end with this today. Turn your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 2. And I'm sorry I'm going to breeze right by this. Maybe I can come back next week and work on a little bit more. I began the service earlier by telling you guys that I wanted to show you that reconciliation is at the heart of God and reconciliation has, has, has numerous multiple implications. Turn your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 2. And I want you to go to, uh, and I want you to, go to verse, verse 11. I want you to go to verse 11, Matthew, uh, Ephesians chapter 2. Everybody look up here for a second. I want, to set, I want to set up the background, and then I want, I, I, want, I want to just go into the passage, and I'm not going to have time, a lot of time to elaborate it, but here's what I want you to do. In Ephesians chapter 2, when we get to Ephesians chapter 2, Ephesians chapter 2 is an elaboration of Ephesians chapter 1. In Ephesians chapter 1, here's essentially what Paul has done. In verses 19 to 23 specifically, he has made this case. He said, God has triumphed in Christ. God has triumphed in Christ over sin, over death, over Satan, over, 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 over evil spiritual beings. God, God has triumphed in Christ and Christ is now seated at the right hand of God and he rules with all authority and all power. That's his argument in Ephesians chapter 1, end of verse 1. Ephesians chapter 2, here's what he says. He said, now, I want to show you how that's demonstrated. I want to show you how that victory of Christ on the cross, defeating Satan, evil beings, and, and all the evil in the world, I want to show you how that victory is demonstrated, how that, how that victory over all that is demonstrated. I want to show you that indeed Christ is seated on high and that he rules with all authority. I want to show you. And he shows it in two sections, verses 1 through 10, which we're all really familiar with. Because in verses 1 through 10, he focuses on the individual aspect of our reconciliation with God. Where he says, you have been forgiven of your sins and your transgressions. While you were still dead, God brought you to life. And he has, ex- he has extended his grace upon grace upon grace into your life. To which we all go, that's phenomenal news. I, I knew it. God demonstrates Christ's victory on the cross for us by reconciling us to God. Did you know that in verses 11 to 21 and the rest of Ephesians... Paul literally says, whoa, 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 stop, 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 stop. You know how you're super jazzed and excited about the fact that Christ has demonstrated his power, a victory on the cross by reconciling you to God? Let me tell you the other dimension of that. And he doesn't skip a beat. And he says, listen, verse 12. Remember that at that time you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel, and foreigners to the covenants of the promise. 
But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far away have been brought near through the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace who has made the two one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility. By abolishing in his flesh the law with its commandments and regulations, his purpose was to create in himself one new man out of the two, thus making peace. And in this one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross by which he put to death their hostility. So he came and preached peace to you who were near and far away and to those who were near. For through him we both have access to the Father by one spirit. You are no longer foreigners and aliens, but fellow citizens. Listen. Paul's entire argument in Ephesians chapter 2 verses 11 21 is this. God has demonstrated his victory over sin and death by reconciling you to God. And then he says, don't stop there. He says, keep going. He says, I want to show you the other way in which the power of Christ, victory on the cross is demonstrated. And he says, that victory is demonstrated just as powerfully in the fact that he has now broken down dividing walls and brought two groups of people who existed in enmity and hostility with each other. You know what he's saying? He's saying, you know how on the cross, Christ died for your sins? He says, on the cross, Christ died for racial hatred, racial division, racial hostility. He says, you know how on the cross, God reconciled you to God so that you could have peace with God? He says, on the cross, God reconciled, broken, lost humanity to each other so that you can be reconciled with each other and have peace with each other. And the climax of the statement is verse 16. When he says, look at that again. By abolishing his flesh, verse 16, and in this one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross. What is he saying? He's saying there is one reconciliation that God has been after from the beginning of time. It's reconciliation of you and God, you to each other. You and God, you and each other. His point is, one isn't more important than the other. One doesn't come prior to the other. He says, God's reconciliation of you to him and God's reconciliation of you to each other happened at the same, say it with me, time. God's reconciliation. What does that mean? Let me sum it up for you so that you know. If you see the reconciliation on the cross as just you and God, your perspective, is, your perspective will be, we the people of God are the messengers. We possess the gospel message. We possess the good news to present to people. That's your approach. But if you see the cross as at the same time reconciling God and you and me to each other, you realize that you don't just merely possess and carry the good news, but you and I become the good news. Say this with me. We are. Say it with me. Come on. We are the message. Say it again. We are the message. See it again. We are the message. You know what these guys were doing this morning? They were trying to take that, that, that horizontal beam off. Or the vertical, uh, hor- hor- horizontal. They were trying to take the horizontal beam off. Do you know why? Do you know why? Because listen, 
The entire world is hungry to see the power of the gospel. The world is hungry to see the power of the gospel that says when God reconciled all of humanity by his death, resurrection on the cross and triumphed defeating evil and Satan and all injustice evil in the world, at the same time, not one after the other, not one prior to the other, but at the same time, one single moment, Christ accomplished reconciliation. You and God, you to each other. Same time. Here's the problem. When the world sees the cross, all they see is a horizontal stick that we use to beat each other up. The way that they will see the gospel, the gospel, the gospel of one reconciliation, one reconciliation, one reconciliation is if somehow, somehow, you and I lived our lives not just caring and possessing the gospel message, but we lived our lives in saying one reconciliation. We are the message of the gospel. Our lives, our unity, our life together in community. This is why for the rest of the sermon series, you will be reminded of this over and over and over again. To act as if racial reconciliation is an add-on to the gospel. Racial reconciliation is something that, you know, people who are called to that ministry do. Racial reconciliation is something special that those who are really in that field ought to do. But for me, I'm going to be about Jesus and me. I don't have any bad feelings towards anybody. I live my life with lots of friends who have other culture and all that ethnicity. Living that life, I am telling you right now, falls short of the gospel call on your life to be reconcilers of people across race, culture, and ethnicity. Do you hear me? So somehow we have to figure out together. I'm leaving this without practical application because that would make it completely like not even worth, worth it. Because here's what I want you to wrestle with as you walk out of here this morning. I want you to ask yourself, what is my perspective of the cross? Do I really believe, as Paul says, that in that one act and moment of reconciliation, that God reconciles not only us to God, but God has reconciled us to each other. And it's by the very way that we live out our lives as reconcilers that people will see the gospel. Do you even know and have relationships with, in deep community with, being challenged and stretched by, learning from, humbling yourself in front of someone of another race, another ethnicity, another culture. This is as bold of a challenge as I can give. If you are a Christian and the sum total of your relationships are with people of your race, your culture, your ethnicity, that's not just being a, well, I guess I'm not a good, that is antithetical to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Can I say it any stronger? It's not just about, well, okay, I'm not as, 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 as progressive. In the, it's about me saying, I am living my life as a follower of Jesus. Now, obviously, the question of, man, how do you even begin to do that, dude? How, where do we even start? That's what I'm hoping we can discover on our journey for the next two, three weeks. Now, before I end, we've talked about this. One or two questions or comments. I'm not going to go long, and then we're going to end with prayer. Yes? I have a stand up, stand up. Church. You have a question for the entire church. church. Is there a mic? Is there a mic? 
Your name, sir. Papo. Most of you know me. Most of you don't. Okay. Okay. Go ahead. Um, how many of you thought of each other as fellow Americans? Yeah, just go and hold it that way. Did that work? I'll say it loud. <laughs> how many thought of each other as fellow Americans and sat down to American, not white American? American, mm. not African American. Mm. American, not Indian American. I'm not Latin American. I'm American. I was born here. So every face that comes to me in America is American. There's no difference. Okay. Anybody else? Come on, church. Anybody else? Yes. See, he, see, here, see, this is what I like, see? And this is what needs to happen together as a church. Because you don't like what he said, because you disagree. And respectfully, because he says, hey, we should all be Americans. And immediately you're going, you know what? Even that distinction itself, to me, is divisive. And I don't want that. Whereas he says, then tell me why you don't like that. Tell me what's about that that is not resonating with you. And you talk to each other. You don't just assume that who is that guy with this tattoo on his arms and what the heck is he? You say to yourself, who, you say to yourself, who are you? Why do you feel that way? And you do the same. That's what we need to do. You know what we've done so far? He'll get up and say something. We all walk on going, what a stupid statement. Or I totally disagree with that. Or yeah, that really resonated with me. And end of dialogue. How will we ever grow together? How? How? Okay, a couple more people. Oh, we're done. A couple more people. I spend way too much time on the white, this is the thing that white people like, you know. Again, white privilege. See, another form of white privilege. Even when it's not a white person, it gets white privilege. It's just fun. It's safe to make fun of. Chris is absolutely right. And we'll talk about that in a couple of weeks. It's, it's safe to make fun of white people because why? Because why? <laughs> I was going to say something. I'm like, I don't know why. Because at the end of the day, we're still privileged. Yep. Chris says because at the end of the day. Chris says at the end of the day, it's because she's, you know. But let me just say one thing. I got an email this past Sunday from a, a white woman who said this, and it was so cool. It was such a good question. She said, Peter, I've lived my, in the last four or five years in an entire black community. I'm the only white person in an entire black community. And she said, you know what I wrestle with? I wrestle with, is it okay to be white? Is it okay to be white? Because I'm not like Carlos Jasky over there. It was like, proud white man. I'm not, I'm not like that. So what does it mean? And she said this. It was so cool. She said, how do I get to a place where I'm okay in my white identity? I'm okay with who I am. And yet at the same time, I could engage people of color. And I thought, man, that is so dead on. And for those of you white folks in this church who are doing that, who, have, who are forcing yourself and placing yourself in, 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 in environments of people of color, and you're learning, you're growing, and yes, you are, you are the object of, whether it be racism or ethnocentrism, whatever, and you're hanging in there in order to learn and grow, I'm just telling you, what you are doing is the God. One more person. Did anybody just like hate what I talked about today? I'm serious. Because I want to hear from you. I wanna, if you hated what was talked about today and you're going, that sucked. <laughs> I'm sorry, is that a bad word? Okay. <laughs> you guys know what I'm going to say, right? I came to the country when I was 10 years old and so I don't know. I know. 
I don't, I don't know. I don't know what to, okay. One person back there and we'll end. Go ahead. I was going to say, this is my first time here. It's your first time here. Wow. I'm not even going to touch that. We're just going to end on that. Everybody stand up. Everybody stand up. I I want us to end on a happy note. Worship team, choir, will you guys come on up? I want us to end on a happy note, okay? All right. We are going to pray, though. We are going to pray. We are going to pray. Oh, look. Everybody, can you just look up your real? I, I, I thank you guys for hanging in there uh, throughout today. And I know that for some of you, uncomfortable. I apologize. I like breeze right through this. I promise uh, we'll clarify some more next week. And I added and threw a ton out there for you. But bow your heads with me as, as, as we pray. God. God. Lord, I don't even presume or pretend that I have this thing figured out in any way. The only thing that compels me, Lord, in in this journey, the only thing that compels me is that whenever I look at the cross, I can't just say, God, thank you for saving me. I can't just walk away saying, God, I'm glad for my heavenly destiny. Whenever I look at the cross, God, I am floored. I am floored and humbled and broken that you would do that, that you would reconcile us to each other so that we could live lives that reflect the kingdom here on earth as we await your coming. As we await your coming. And Lord, as we end, we join as a church singing the chorus of heaven, singing the chorus of the angels. We join the angels in heavenly throne today as they shout and as they sing, hallelujah, glory to God, glory in the highest. We join all of creation in claiming, proclaiming. We join all of creation declaring the greatness of God, the greatness of God, the majesty of God, the work of God. You are king, you are God, and you are Lord. You are God, you are king. This morning, as we leave, I want you to clap for one reason. Clap that the work of reconciliation has reconciled you to God, but to each other. And that is good news. That is good news. That is good news. Thank you, Lord. 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 Don't anybody leave. Please join us for the barbecue. Please make sure you pick up a pledge card if you haven't or sign online because we need your help. Go in peace. May the Lord bless you as you go forward. Have a great, great week. We'll see you back here next Sunday.